This morning, we are in the last chapter of the book of Genesis. And so if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn in them to Genesis chapter 50. We've got two more weeks in our study of the book of Genesis, and then we're done. Uh, There are three sections in chapter 50, two of which we're going to cover this morning, and then one we'll leave for next week. Uh, The first section, the first 14 verses, is Jacob's burial back in Canaan. We saw at the end of chapter 49, he he commanded his sons uh, to take his body after he dies back to Canaan and bury him in the field, uh, in, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah that his grandfather Abraham purchased from the Hittites back in the Promised Land. And so that's the first 14 verses. The next seven verses are Joseph's brothers seeking forgiveness from him. And so we're going to cover those first two sections this morning. Uh, And then we'll leave the last section, which is Joseph's final request of his brothers to do the same with his body. And then we'll see Joseph's death himself. So next week we will cover that. And that will be a springboard in, in us looking at the entire book of Genesis. And so you don't want to miss next week. As we use these last, we'll cover the last five verses, uh, but we'll also use that as a springboard to go to our 30,000-foot level and really do a summary over the entire book of Genesis, all 50 chapters, noting the themes of redemption and God's sovereignty that we've seen woven all throughout the book of Genesis. And so I'm very excited about that. If you're wondering about what is next after our study of Genesis, let me give you a quick preview we're going to have a couple of standalone sermons in the, in the month of January. And then the last Sunday of January, we're going to begin a short five-week sermon series um, where we will be uh, looking at the very heart of why we exist as a church. And we're going to be unpacking some passages of Scripture that, that get to the very heart of who we are as a church and what we are to be about doing And so I'm very excited about that series, and it's going to be kind of a vision series, but more of a a vision series with some practical meat to it, because it's my hope that what we learn and apply through that sermon series will chart the course for our next year together, so that by the end of chapter, by the end of the year 2021, when we get to the year, end of the year, we will be able to look and see some very real tangible growth, spiritual growth in all of us, as well as a renewed faithfulness to Great Commission obedience. But for this morning, we're in the first 21 verses of chapter 50, and so follow along in your copy of God's Word as we read chapter 50 of Genesis, verses 1 through 21. This is God's Word. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hooed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. 
And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning there for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephraim the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you... You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you so much for the privilege it's been this morning to gather as your people And to sing these songs that extol your glory, magnify your holiness, and remind us of the cross and the gospel. We thank you so much for your word that we turn now to, and we ask in your spirit, Father, that you would give us not just an understanding that we might be more knowledgeable about it, but God, that in your providence you might use it to sanctify us and to make us as a people look more like Christ, to be a faithful and obedient bride until you return to bring us home. We ask this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. So the context in which chapter 50 begins is obviously the death of the patriarch Jacob. The deathbed scene for Jacob began all the way back in chapter 48 and culminated in chapter 49 with Jacob gathering his sons, his 12 sons around him, and blessing them, blessing each of them. And then chapter 49 ended with Jacob breathing his last and dying. In the first three verses of chapter 50, we see Joseph's reaction to his father's death. And it's twofold. On the one hand, it is natural and emotional as you would expect when someone's father passes away. And on the other hand, it is practical and ceremonial as well. 
He says, Moses tells us that he fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. This is a, a natural, emotional, raw reaction of Joseph to his father's death. These words convey to us a deep sense of grief and loss as Joseph throws aside any sense of formality and, and, and weep over him and kiss his face. It's clear that he deeply misses his father and that there's a deep love that he had for his father as he reacts emotionally to his dad's passing. But his reaction is also practical and ceremonial as he prepares his father's body for burial. He instructs the Egyptian physicians to embalm his father and then they mourn for him for 70 days. It's interesting to note here that Joseph commanded the physicians to do this to his father's body and not the priests. Embalming was a practice that was typically not done for medical reasons. It was done for religious reasons, and typically for that reason, it was done by the priests of Egypt, not the physicians. There is absolutely no historical evidence that ancient Hebrews practiced embalming. In fact, the only Hebrews that are embalmed in the Bible are Jacob and Joseph in this very chapter. This was a thoroughly Egyptian practice, and as we said, it was primarily done for religious purposes. The Egyptian notion of the afterlife was predicated on a preservation of the physical body, which is why they went to such lengths in the mummification of their pharaohs. So it seems that this embalming of Jacob and later the embalming of Joseph himself at the end of the chapter is more of an acquiescence to the cultural norms and traditions and practices of that day. Now this doesn't mean that it was wrong for Joseph or it's wrong for us to embalm bodies when someone dies, just as it's not necessarily wrong to have someone cremated. However, it's wise for us as Christians to always put the cultural norms and practices of our day, even in this regard, through a biblical lens, instead of just blindly accepting them. This is not a sermon on the biblical ethic of Christian funeral practices, but suffice it to say that there are biblical principles that apply in when we have these hard decisions to make, either about ourselves or our loved ones, that we'll all face and have to make one day. And one of those principles is not to just blindly accept the norms of our day just because they are cheaper and more practical. After Joseph's reaction to his father's death in the first three verses, the next three verses, Joseph requests permission from Pharaoh to go and bury his father in Canaan as his father had commanded him to do, and Pharaoh grants that permission. I find it interesting here that Joseph has to ask permission of Pharaoh to do this. Isn't that interesting? And, and not only does he have to ask permission, but apparently he's not even granted the presence with Pharaoh to be, to be able to ask it directly. He has to entreat the household of Pharaoh to go beg his leave of Pharaoh in order to go bury his own father. I find this curious. 
We've been told all along here in the last few chapters that Joseph is ascended to the, to the second most important position in all of Egypt. That he answers to no one except Pharaoh himself. And yet here he is having to make a request that a message be brought to Pharaoh in order to beg his leave so as he, so as he can go and, and bury his own father. You would think that Joseph would have the authority to go and do this himself. But apparently he doesn't. And to me, this is a reminder that though God has provided a means of rescue for Joseph and his family from the famine by providing this respite in Egypt, they are still not home. We're reminded that this is not their home and that they are not a free people in Egypt and they they are still outsiders here and this this subtle need for Joseph to ask permission to go bury his father is a bad omen of what is to come for the Hebrews during the next few generations as they continue their exile in the land of Egypt. And then in verses 7 through 9, we have this description of this huge entourage that accompanies Joseph and his brothers as they take their father's body back to Canaan for, for burial. We've all seen long funeral processions, right? You're driving along the road and you, and you see the hearse coming the other way. You see the, the lights, the flashers on, and you pull off to the side in, out of respect for uh, that person and their family that's grieving. And sometimes it's, if it's some kind of VIP, the cars just keep coming and coming and coming and coming. And if it's a, a very important person, you could be sitting there on the side of the road for quite a while. Well, this was a gigantic funeral procession that left Egypt and traveled all the way up to the land of Canaan. We're told that this funeral procession included all the servants of Pharaoh. It included the elders of his household, that is Pharaoh's household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt. Now, that might be hyperbole when he says all, but the point is, this, there was a lot of them. This wasn't just Joseph and his brothers going to their dad's funeral. This included all the dignitaries and VIPs of the land of Egypt, which just shows how much the Egyptians revered Joseph. They showed their appreciation to Joseph for saving all of Egypt and all the people of that land by providing that means of rescue through the famine by honoring his father with their presence at his funeral. This funeral procession also included, we're told, all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and and all of his father's household, and that only their children and their animals they left in the land of Goshen. They had lived in Egypt, their brother, his brothers had, for 17 years now. And Joseph had lived there for over 20 years. And so certainly by now, their families had grown significantly during that time. All of them came along, except for the young children. They were left in Goshen. Perhaps that was Joseph's way of signaling to Pharaoh that I will, in fact, return. I will come back once I've buried my father. And then lastly, this procession, we're told, included a military element. As we're told, that chariots and horsemen went up with them. These were military assets that accompanied the funeral procession. 
And at the end of this long description, at the end of verse 9, we're told that it was a great company. It was a very large and very long funeral procession that accompanied them back to Canaan. When they arrive in Canaan at the threshing floor of Atad, in verse 10, we're told that they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. So great and so grievous was this lamentation that the Canaanites living in that land saw and heard them mourning, and they renamed the place the Mourning of Egypt, which is what Abel Mizraim means, the Mourning of Egypt. And then at the close of this first part of chapter 50, in verses 12 through 14, we're told that all of this fulfilled the dying request of the patriarch Jacob, who had told his sons at the end of chapter 49 to bury his body in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, the field that his grandfather Abraham had purchased as a burying spot from Ephraim the Hittite. Now there's no mistaking here that the patriarch Hebrew, the Israelite Jacob, is being treated as a king here. He's being treated with royalty. Because of the cost and time involved in embalming a body, that was something that was reserved only for the very wealthiest of Egyptians, like pharaohs and such. It took 40 days to properly embalm a body, and so this was not something that was done to the common folk. In particular, the 70 days of mourning, get that, two and a half months of mourning that the Egyptians do for Jacob was something that was reserved only for kings. Not to mention this royal entourage accompanied by a military escort. And so this was clearly Jacob being treated as if he is royalty. Now, what does this description of the funeral of Jacob have to do with our lives here in 2021? Well, first, we need to understand how those Israelites wandering in the wilderness some 430 years after Jacob's death, how they would have reacted to this story. Because again, they are the original audience to whom Moses wrote the book of Genesis. And so, How would they have understood this and what application would it have had to their lives? And thereby we can find out how it applies to our lives. I, I think this story would have had at least a couple of applications to their lives. First, it would have been an encouragement to them as they are reminded from this story that a king is coming from Jacob. They'd be encouraged by that. But then secondly, this story would have taught them a very important lesson about God's sovereignty. As the Israelites observed the portrait of Jacob that was unfolding on the pages that Moses was writing to them in this book, they would have seen Jacob, their ancestor, a foreigner in, in Egypt, an immigrant in Egypt, treated as a king. And this would remind them that a king was promised to come from Jacob. We're reminded of this from chapter 49. In chapter 49, as Jacob is gathering his sons around him and blessing his sons, part of the blessing that he uh, speaks over his son Judah says this, 
Genesis 49, verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And so it was prophecy of a king coming from the tribe of Judah, but not just any old king, a king whose reign would never end, a forever king in an everlasting kingdom. The chronicler wrote in 1 Chronicles 5 verse 2 that a chief would come from the tribe of Judah. And and then the prophet Micah uh, tells us and prophesies that Bethlehem would be the birthplace of this chief, this king that would come from the tribe of Judah. Micah 5.2 says, but you, O Bethlehem Epaphra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. And you may recall this is the verse quoted by the wise men when they're questioned by King Herod. Where is this one who has been born king of the Jews in Bethlehem? Now this prophecy, obviously, of a coming king was partially fulfilled with the anointing of King David as the king over all of Israel. Uh, David is from Bethlehem. It's the city of David. He is from the tribe of Judah. But King David died. And this prophecy, the prophecy was that the scepter would not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. And so this pointed to an eternal kingdom and a forever king who would rule in that forever kingdom. And so the ultimate fulfillment of this was when Jesus Christ, the the King of kings and the Lord of lords, was born in Bethlehem, the God-man. God enfleshed himself as a man, this carpenter king. The Israelites, hearing this story about Jacob being treated as a king in his death, would have been encouraged as they were reminded by this sight that a king was coming, and that as a result of that, better days lie ahead. God was not done with them as they wandered in the wilderness. They would be reminded that God was not done with them, that he still had work to do in them. They had escaped slavery in Egypt, but now they are in this this desert wilderness. They're, They're out of Egypt, but they're not yet in the promised land. And so they were in this in-between land and this in-between time. They had no king, but a king was promised. And so they would have been encouraged here that better days lie ahead. And church, the reminder to us that a king is coming should be an encouragement to us as well. We've just celebrated the first advent of Christ the, the, when he came as a child, as, as, a, as a suffering servant, when he lived a, a perfect sinless life and then he was put to death on a cross for sinners like you and I. And we look forward with great anticipation to the second advent of Christ, the return of the king where he will come not as a suffering servant but as a conquering king, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he will set up this earthly reign forever. But now we live in this in-between time. This desert wilderness. 
where the fall has stained everything around us. And here, we are reminded by stories like this that a king is coming. He's coming back. And because of that, much better days lie ahead. Friend, we have no promise that the year 2021 will be any better than the year 2020. It might be worse. We don't know. The promise we hold on to is not that things will get better in the in-between land, but that an eternity that far outweighs temporary suffering and disappointments in this life awaits us in the land to come, in the new heaven and the new earth that is coming. And this promise is a promise for all those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, who have embraced the gospel, who have trusted in Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross as their only and sufficient hope to be rescued from the judgment that we all deserve. And so my question for you this morning is, have you so trusted in Christ? If you have not, then I beg of you to be reconciled to God through faith in Christ while you still can. If you don't come to faith in Christ, if you don't come to Him, then you are not His, and the promise of better days to come is not a promise for you. Instead, for those who do not come to faith in Christ, the promise is of much, much, much worse days to come. So repent of your sin and profess faith in Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross as your only hope to be rescued from the judgment that you and I and all of us deserve for our sins against a holy God. But if you have come to faith in Christ, then be reminded from this appearance of Jacob as a king, be reminded that better days lie ahead because our king is coming back. Live in this in-between land in the here and now, this, this middle earth, if you will, with an eye on the next land, the new heaven and the new earth that is coming. Don't be lulled to sleep by the siren song of what this world has to offer, but be captivated by the King of Kings who has purchased your freedom in this life so that you might have life everlasting with him in the next. And as you suffer disappointment in this desert wilderness, in this in-between time, no matter how bad it gets here, be reminded that better days lie ahead because a king is coming. He's coming back. But I think the story about Jacob's funeral possession would have also taught the Israelites a very critical lesson about God's sovereignty. The sovereignty of God has been a major theme these last uh, 14 verses or 14 chapters of the book of Genesis as we've covered the life of Joseph from 37, chapter 37 to chapter 50. And here we see this theme again. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness 430 years after this scene, after Jacob's funeral. Slavery in Egypt is still fresh on your mind. How they treated you and your loved ones as, you're, as you toiled under slave labor, uh, under the, the, the harsh treatment of the Egyptian taskmasters, it's fresh on your mind. 
You think about that and how that occurred for generation upon generation upon generation. And you hear this story about how your ancestors made their way back to Canaan to bury Jacob. And nearly the entire nation went with them. And you would naturally wonder, why in the world did you go back to Egypt? I mean, you were so close. You were literally in Canaan. And the famine was over. The famine had been over for nearly 15 years at this point. Why didn't you just stay in Canaan and never go back to Egypt? Why did you leave your kids in Goshen? Why didn't you just bring them with you and then just, just stay there in Canaan? We would never have had to endure 400 years of bondage in Egypt. Why would you go back? We can just hear the exasperation and the incredulity on the lips of the Egyptians as they hear this story, and it would have taught them a very important lesson about God's sovereignty. Because this meant that God was not done with the people in Egypt. He still had some preparations to make with this nation. He had to grow them into a nation first. And according to Genesis chapter 15, the the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete. God was storing up wrath for the Canaanites, a, a wrath that he would unleash 400 years later when out from Egypt comes not just a family but a nation, two to three million strong, an imposing army through which he would unleash his wrath on the inhabitants of Canaan. But it wasn't yet time for that. And so... After the funeral, Joseph and his brothers and all their household, they go back down to Egypt. According to providence, according to God's sovereign plan, God's intention included 400 years of bondage for the Israelites. And that was just something that the Israelites wandering in the wilderness 400 years later, would just have to come to grips with that that was God's intention for them. Could they follow a God who had sovereignly led their ancestors back into the proverbial lion's den? Intentionally placing them within the grasp of the next Pharaoh and the next generation of Egyptians who would radically turn the table on them and turn the honoring of Jacob into the enslavement of Israel. Could they follow that God? This lesson about God's sovereignty would come to a climax in the very next scene. In verses 15 through 21, Moses then recounts a story of what happened when all the brothers returned to to Goshen after the funeral. Joseph's brothers are now worried that Joseph is going to unleash his fury on them now that their father is dead. That he's going to unleash his fury on them for all that they had done against him years ago. Apparently they thought that Joseph's wrath against them was was somehow being restrained as long as their father was still alive. 
But now that Jacob was dead, perhaps Joseph will see that as an open door to seek vengeance for how his brothers treated him years ago. You recall the scene from chapter 45, 17 years prior, when Joseph finally revealed his identity to his brothers. It is I, your brother. And there was this public the display of forgiveness that was granted there. Joseph said this in chapter 45, verses 4 and 5. I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. And then later he said, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. And they had enjoyed what seemed to be a a, a certain level of reconciliation, and then their family enjoyed rescue from the famine because of what God did through Joseph. But now the famine is long gone, and their dad is in the grave, and the brothers are now questioning the forgiveness that Joseph had granted them. They're thinking, It couldn't be real, could it? Surely he's still mad at us. After all, we are truly guilty. And we deserve retribution. How could he just forgive us without any payback? Surely there must be something we can do to earn his forgiveness. Have you ever thought those same things about God's forgiveness of you? It couldn't be real, could it? Surely he's still mad at us. How could a holy God forgive our rebellion against him? After all, we are truly guilty and deserve retribution. How can he just forgive us without any payback? Surely there must be something we can do to earn his forgiveness. God's grace poured out on sinners like us is extravagantly generous. And it's wholly illogical to man's economy of quid pro quo. It just doesn't make sense to us. How could a holy God forgive rebellion against him until we realize that he didn't just sweep our sins under the rug? Our sins were fully and completely paid for through Jesus' death in our place on the cross of Calvary. God's wrath against our sins was fully poured out It just wasn't poured out on us by God's grace. It was poured out on his son when he died for us on the cross in our place. And sometimes this amazing grace is just too fantastic and too incredible for us to fully comprehend and grasp. And so we question his forgiveness and we wonder if there's some kind of penance that we can perform in order to earn it. And we can't. But that's what Joseph's brothers are thinking here. And so they send this message to Joseph. They don't say it themselves. They send it by way of messenger. Maybe they're scared of him still. So they send a message to him that says, in essence, Dad said when he was still alive that you should forgive us. 
Now, whether Jacob actually said that to them or not, we don't know. Maybe they made it up. Maybe they didn't. But there is indication here. There, is, there seems to be evidence of genuine repentance on their part. They name their sins. They call it transgression. They call it evil. They ask for forgiveness. Look at the end of verse 17. And now, please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Then in verse 18, they, they fall down before Joseph in abject humility. And they present themselves to Joseph as his servants, in essence saying, we'll earn your forgiveness by being your slaves. And, and this brings this whole scene brings Joseph to tears. And we don't know for certain what motivated those tears of Joseph. Perhaps it was because he sees that his brothers still don't trust him and are questioning his forgiveness. Maybe his tears are because he's reminded of how they treated him so many years ago. But I like to think that Joseph's tears here are tears of worship because of what he says next. Look at verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. See, as, as Joseph's brothers come before him and ask forgiveness for the way that they treated their brother so many years ago, Joseph agrees with them that what they did was evil. It was wrong. And that their, their, their intention in doing so was itself evil and wrong. But then Joseph says that God also had an intention in that. And his intention was not for evil, but for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And that intention of God was completely unknown to both Joseph and his brothers at the time. And isn't that usually the case for us as well? Something is happening to us that feels like evil. It, it feels wrong, whether it's disease or a virus or the death of a loved one or the betrayal of a friend or a loss of a job. Whatever the case may be, it feels wrong because we're suffering, because it hurts. And though we know that God always has a purpose in everything that he allows to happen, we are usually clueless as to what that purpose might be. We are blinded to the good that could possibly come from what is happening. And that's why God's sovereignty must be apprehended by faith, because we don't see the good. And we've been confronted with this truth a number of times in the story of Joseph in Genesis. And it's all about learning to trust in God's sovereignty, that he is still in control no matter how bad it gets. But what's unique about what Joseph tells us here is that God's sovereignty, God's sovereign and divine providence extends even to the, the intentionally evil actions of man. That's exactly what Joseph is saying here. You intended this for evil, but God intended this 
for good. When the brothers did to, what the brothers did to Joseph by, by throwing him in that pit and by selling him to the slave traders and by going back to their father and insinuating to him that he's been eaten by animals, that was evil. That was categorically wrong and sinful. And their intent in treating Joseph in that manner was itself evil. And yet, God intended it for good. You see, there was an intention on God's part. Note that this wasn't God just reacting to the evil actions of the brothers and then bringing something good out of it. That's what popular Christian cultural Christian Christian. That's what cultural uh, Christianity, popular Christianity today, that's how it usually wrestles with things like this. God can make good things come out of the bad. Can he? Yes, absolutely. He's God. Yes, he can make good things come out of bad. But church, that view of God strips him of his sovereignty and his omnipotence and even his omniscience. Because that view of God suggests that he is either unaware of what will happen or that he is somehow impotent to prevent it. And that view of God is not one that comes from the Bible. No, Joseph says that there was an intention on God's part here. He didn't just react to what the brothers did. He too was acting. But while the intention of the brothers was evil, the intention of God in permitting them to do so was for good. And that's always the heart behind God's intention. 100% of the time, his intention is for good. Romans 8, 28, my, my paraphrase. Everything that God does, he does for our good and his glory. Even when it comes to the evil actions of men. God's intention in allowing that to happen is good for our good and his glory. The people committing those acts are doing evil. And they will be held accountable for their sin. You see, man will be held accountable and and responsible for his sin. And he cannot blame God's sovereignty as an excuse. James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. God is not sinning in permitting the sins of others to happen. Though, listen to me, though he has somehow included those actions in his sovereign plan. Put another way, God does not sin and he is not the author of sin. But somehow, somehow he ordains it to occur and he is blameless in doing so. Or to use Joseph's own words here, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. When you suffer because of the sins of others, the person who committed those sins against you is 100% to blame for those sins. But in your suffering, you can turn to a God who is sovereign even over those sins. Which means that he isn't caught off guard by it. He isn't unaware of it. 
And he isn't powerless to prevent it. In fact, he is powerful enough to restrain it to occur only within the boundaries of his sovereign and divine plan. Which means that it won't go any further than what he will allow. But most importantly and most comforting at all in these times is that this means that there is a good intention on God's part for allowing it. Rarely, if ever, do we get a glimpse of what that good intention is. Sometimes it's hidden for generations, like with Joseph. Hidden for years. He couldn't possibly have known what God was intending, the good that God was intending through the harsh treatment of his brothers for years and years and years as he spent time in the pit, as he spent time as a slave, as he spent time in the prison. He couldn't possibly have ventured a guess as to the good that God was going to bring from that. And only now, generation later, 40 years later, is that veil lifted and we see the good that was intended. Most times, the reason is never given to us this side of the grave. And so we take it by faith that God has a good intention in permitting this evil to touch our lives. And knowing that God is always still in control and 100% sovereign, even over the evil actions of man, is a great comfort to us when we experience the effects of those evil actions on our lives and the lives of those that we love. So what was the good that God intended in permitting Joseph's brothers to treat him with such evil? We're told at the end of verse 20, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. In closing, I want us to consider that the many people that Joseph is referring to here who would be kept alive are family, but also the Israelites wandering the desert 430 years later, and also you and I sitting in these seats today. Because as we back up to 30,000 feet, we see that God was not just rescuing Joseph and his brothers, but he was forming a nation. And that he had in view here not just the nation of Israel, but all the nations of the earth, all the peoples of the earth who would be blessed because the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, would be brought from this nation. So church, don't ever doubt, don't ever doubt that God's plans for good, even in the midst of evil, are a thousand times greater than we could ever possibly imagine. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning and the reminder that it is that you are still holding the reins to all of life. That even the king's life is but a river in your hand. That everything that happens is according to your divine plans, even the things that we look at and cannot possibly venture a guess the good that can come from it. Because we look at life through the lens of time and space, and you don't. You have created both time and space, and everything that you do 
is for our good and your glory. Father, we ask that you would build our faith in that truth as we navigate this life in this in-between land, in this desert wilderness stained by sin. May we be buoyed by the reality and the truth that you are still in control and that you're causing all things to happen for good and your glory. Father, we pray for those who may be among us who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that they, that, Father, that you would lead them to the end of themselves, that you would cause them to see that these promises of the next life, these promises of everlasting life, these promises of freedom forever with you in eternity are only for those who are yours, who have come to you in faith and trusted in the finished work of your son, Jesus Christ, not in their own efforts, not in their own ability to try to earn that forgiveness. And that what stands in the way of them enjoying those same promises is their sin, their rebellion against you. And Father, I pray pray that you'd make it plain to them that the only way that the punishment, the judgment that they deserve for their rebellion is Christ on a cross in their place. And we ask, Father, that you would give them the faith, the trust in Jesus Christ alone to rescue them from that. Father, we love you. Thank you so much for this, this truth and this book. And we pray that these truths will be driven deep into our souls this week and that you would bear fruit for your kingdom and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.